the Christian community has the opportunity to form a counter community of witness. The church is different. We are called to live out a message of hope because we hear the voice of our shepherd and we follow him. And we invite people to, to listen to the shepherd and to follow Christ. How do we do that? I think, I mean, there are so many different ways of, of doing it by being present, by serving, by being the voice for the voiceless. I think the church has an opportunity now in Lebanon and everywhere to cultivate an alternative consciousness regarding politics, immigration, racism, equality, and ways to resist the powers of this world. My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve. On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed, The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as Global Ambassador and Ministry Director for Langham. Today, Chris sits down with Hikmat Kashu, a Langham scholar from Lebanon who received his PhD with support from Langham. For the past 14 years, Hikmat has served as Senior Pastor of Resurrection Church in Beirut. Under his leadership, the church has pursued God's radical call to love our enemies and serve our neighbors in a region fraught with challenges. He and Chris go deep on the concept of incarnational mission and how the church is called to live out a message of hope which points the world to Christ. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Welcome to On Mission with me, Chris Wright. And welcome back if you're one of those who's regularly listening in to these conversations. And if you are indeed a regular listener, then we're going back today to a country that we have visited twice before, and that is the beautiful but sadly very troubled country of Lebanon. In earlier podcasts, I chatted with Riyad Cassis. Uh, Riyad is the Programme Director for Langham Scholars, and also with Martin Akkad, who is Professor of Islamic Studies at ABTS, the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary in Beirut. And today, my guest is another fine Langham scholar, Dr. Hikmat Kashu. Welcome to you, Hikmat. Hey, it's nice to be here, and I'm excited about uh, the discussion we're going to have. Thank you, Dr. Chris. Hikmat, uh, am I right in thinking that uh, your name, Hikmat, is the Arabic form of the Hebrew Hokmah, which means wisdom? That's correct. 
Ah, so we'd expect some wisdom today then, I hope, from Mr. Dr. Wisdom. It's a lovely name to have, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, yes, indeed. The question is how much I'm living up to my name. Another question, yeah. Well, that's, that's true for all of us, I'm sure. And just to remind people, uh, as I say, although we have been to Lebanon before, Lebanon is a, a famous country there in the Middle East, famous in biblical times, of course, as well. Uh, the Old Testament refers to Lebanon often, the famous cedars of Lebanon. And uh, Hosea goes on about the wonderful wine of Lebanon, the best in the world. And I think I agree with Hosea there. But it is uh, a small country. It's uh, smaller than Wales, uh, smaller even than Connecticut. And yet it has a population of some 7 million, at least at the moment. And the last statistics I saw were that about 1.5 million Syrian refugees, Hikmat can bring us up to date on that later, which is like about a quarter of the population, the largest number of refugees per capita in the world. Now, Hikmat, uh, you teach at the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, in fact, you were the academic dean there for some years. But your main job now is as the senior pastor of the Resurrection Church in Beirut. And in a moment, we're certainly going to talk about your work there at that church. But first of all, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, um, who you are, where you are, and a bit about perhaps your family, your upbringing, your childhood, and so on, and, and your journey into Christian faith. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm from Lebanon. I was born in 1975, and that was the time when the civil war started in Lebanon. And uh, I left school at the age of 15. My father got sick, and... Our house was hit in the war, so I had to go and find a job to work to be able to support my family. And as a result of that, at the age of 17, someone came over to my shop and invited me to uh, go to a church to attend a, you know, a service. And uh, when I went there, I heard a great message about the love of Christ and the freedom and the peace that he gives. And I gave my life to Jesus from that moment. And I've experienced an amazing peace in my heart. And I felt so much love by God as if I finally discovered something that I've never understood before. And I was filled with that love and peace. And I went around telling everybody around me about that peace that I've experienced. And that was the beginning of my spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. um, when I came to faith, I had that um, uh, passion to to study more, to I started loving the Word and I started reading the Word of God. And uh, I was studying in the evenings because I had to work during the day. I had to leave school. So I had a friend of mine who got me books from school. So I was able to read and so forth. And at the age of one, I managed to finish my school and I was invited to, to go study at the seminary, the Arab Baptist Seminary. And there, um, Paul Sanders was the provost at the time, and he really believed in me. And he provided a scholarship for me, and I did four years at the seminary. I got my bachelor, and then went to Czech Republic to IBTS to do my master's in biblical studies. Though, just stepping back a little bit in your story, you said that your, your your whole heart and life was filled with love and peace, but at this time, presumably, the civil war was still going on, so that must have been quite quite a challenge to be living in the midst of a war with love and peace in your heart. 
Exactly. I mean, we had a lot of hatred to our enemies, to almost everybody who's different from us. Mm-hmm. And uh, seeing my father, how his life was he was struggling in many different ways, and he lost his job, properties, and his home, and so forth. So yes, I was filled with anger and hate. So that, that's exactly the message that transformed me, was a message of reconciliation and peace. And later on, we can talk more about um, our relationship to the Syrians and how God turned everything for the good so we are able now to love and serve those who once, you know, destroyed our childhood. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, six, 17 years of civil war is awful mm. and mm. in all our childhood. So we had, we were refugees ourselves. We had to move from Beirut a number of times, lived in the mountains so we were refugees and, and life was really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I can look back and give uh, praise to God through all that. His, uh, he was looking after us. He cared for us. And uh, I mean, we've learned a lot of lessons. Mm-hmm. Being, I mean, being war is ugly. It's really, it's really ugly. Nobody is a winner when there is a civil war. Yes. Mm, it doesn't uh, serve anyone. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the, uh, the, the civil war in Lebanon was something that just filled the news day after day after day. Beirut was, was basically a battlefield and, and, you know, there was a hostage taking and all of that thing going on. So for you and your family to be refugees in your own country, as it were, um, must have been a strange existence, but also give you some sense of those who become refugees and have to flee their own country. Correct, correct. Um, and then in addition to that experience of being a refugee is you live a life where every day there's no certainty. It's quite unpredictable. So I remember how many times my father used to go to work and I used to kiss him goodbye, not knowing if I'm going to see him again. Mm. So as a child, we, we lived with that constant fear, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, so I do understand, you know, the the pain that refugees when they have come to Lebanon from Syria that they live every day not knowing where, where they're going to go back they're staying here how long it's going to last it's it's hard it's mm. really hard yes well before I interrupted you you got up to your uh, master's level studies in uh, Prague in Czech in the Czech Republic that is at the International Baptist Theological Seminary IBTS yes. When I came back from Czech Republic and I started to work at the seminary at the ABTS, and then uh, I got to know from Paul that there is an opportunity to apply for a scholarship through Langham Scholars Program uh, to be able to continue my education. And I've always had that on my heart to pursue my PhD. And I want to express how um, I really appreciate and I'm so thankful for a Langham scholarship program because without, I mean, you guys, honestly, I would not be able to do what I've done. And now I'm able to serve and, you know, develop leaders and pastors and so on because I had that amazing opportunity to be able to do my PhD in Birmingham University mm-hmm. in the UK. But now your main work, I think I'm right in saying, is as the senior pastor of Resurrection Church Beirut. So, Tell us a bit about that church and uh, how you ended up there and uh, something of its history and its ministries today. Uh, Awesome. Yes, RCB, Resurrection Church, um, started in 1963 or 4 
And um, so I'm the third pastor. My predecessor was the president of the seminary for many years. And uh, he was pastoring what was called Hadath Baptist Church at the time. And uh, he is an amazing man of God. And he led the church during the Civil War. And um, so I used to attend that church before I went to the UK to do my doctorate. So when I came back and I started to work at the seminary, became the dean for five years, and I, I taught for 10 years at the seminary. Uh, my pastor, that was in 2008, he asked me if I would um, lead um, Resurrection Church today. And we prayed about it. I think Krista was really excited about that opportunity. We wanted to impact the, the Lebanese community through a local church. We believe in the local church big time. So we accepted that um, offer. And I said to the leaders at the time that I will lead it differently. So I want to empower leaders to lead. I don't, I'm not going to be the one-man show. And uh, the church grew from that time. We were about 75 people. And today the church has really grown to about 4,000 families. Wow. So in the last 14 years, a lot of things have happened. And we've, uh, we've grown by the grace of God. And what we did in the last three years was that we divided the church into, nine, into, into 39 different spiritual tribes or congregations. So what we did, because the church was growing and we didn't want to all meet in one place, um, you know, for many reasons, for safety and COVID in the last two years. So we felt that ideally what we could do is, since we are empowering and developing leaders all the time, is why not to bring all those leaders together and say, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's become 39 different congregations or 40 different congregations in 11 different locations in Lebanon. So we have, we went, so we decentralized the church actually, and it grew even beyond, you know, our imagination. That's, that's amazing because actually I was just uh, looking at, we're going to talk about your book um, a little bit later, but uh, in the forward to the book, and this was published in 2018, which is only about, what, three years ago, uh, it, it says there that your church ha had about 1,300, 1,300 people on three campuses, and you're telling me now that it's about 4,000 family, families on, did you say, nine campuses and 39 different congregations? I mean, even these last few years, there's phenomenal growth. Yes, exactly. So it's in 11 different 11. areas. 11, wow. Yeah, different locations. But in each location, we have different congregations meeting in, in, in a specific congregation. Mm. And, um, and I think the reason is because we put a lot of emphasis on life groups or small groups. We call them life groups. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, over like maybe 500 life groups. So a number of life groups become, you know, a congregation, one congregation. And, uh, and I think we grew significantly because of our leaders. We have an amazing team. They are, you know, totally dedicated to serve. And so we have Iraqi congregations, Syrian congregations, Lebanese congregations, and some congregations are mixed. So it's a very cosmopolitan church. And mm. um, we have expatriates as well, Palestinians, uh, a lot of Egyptians. Um, so, yeah, we mm. invite you to come and join us. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if, yeah, I just wonder if it's surprising to any of, of our listeners 
to hear about such a large church and a large Christian community in the Middle East, I mean, you know, which we always think of as pretty, you know, solidly Muslim. Um, and yet, of course, what we need to be aware of is that there's a substantial Christian population also in Egypt and uh, and indeed historically in Lebanon. I mean, just stepping back into your history again, approximately what percentage of the population of Lebanon is, in fact, or would call themselves Christian of one sort or another? I would say one third or maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, we have about seven million population. So mm -hmm. so one third of those would be, would call themselves who are Christians. So they would mm -hmm. come from the historic church or from Protestant churches and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Lebanese, many Lebanese are Christians for sure. And uh, RCB is, uh, you know, because our service, Resurrection Church, I mean, the service is, um, we try to reach out to people and to serve them and to love them. So our, our ministry is quite holistic. So people love to be part of our congregations. Mm -hmm. And uh, our goal is Christ. So we invite people to follow Christ. And a lot of them would keep their, you know, identity and so forth, where they're coming from their social identity and so forth. But our key, um, you know, we invite people to follow Jesus, to give their life to Jesus and to be part of our families, basically. So this must also then mean that in Lebanon itself, there is a high degree of religious freedom, again, unlike perhaps most other countries in the Middle East. Yes, definitely. In addition to that, we have a lot of Egyptians who are being who are persecuted back home and they come to Lebanon because they find that Lebanon is a place where they have the freedom to practice their faith. And indeed, especially those who have come from a Muslim background. I, when I've been several times teaching, as you know, at, at ABTS, and I'm told there that it's the it's the only uh, evangelical seminary in the Middle East where they are legally allowed to have students from right across the whole of North Africa, from Morocco, Algeria, right down to Sudan and so on, uh, who are legally able to be there as students, which is quite a remarkable opportunity that they have. Exactly. And when we talk about persecution, sometimes in Lebanon you find some kind of persecution in a, in a way that like families would say, oh, we don't want you to go to that church. We come from certain tradition, but nothing major. Like maybe we've had a case or two in the last 20 years where someone was killed because they have believed in Christ. You know, the Muslim community, they honor Christ. They love Christ. They consider Christ a prophet. So when we invite people to come and experience Christ as Lord and Savior, and, and their life is being transformed, they become more loving, more caring. And uh, I mean, they are an added value in the community. We don't ask them to go and, you know, you know what I mean? They are, they, they become part of a community to serve and to love and their core values and their life is transformed. And um, they are a great witness to their neighbors. Hmm. A moment ago, you just made mention in passing of your uh, desire to train leaders, not just to be the leader, but to train leaders. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because reading your book, you're obviously very passionate about that. Uh, and I'm just wondering why you do that and how you feel that that is responding to the particular needs, whether of the church in Lebanon or indeed of the Lebanon as, as a country and as a culture. Yes, you know, many 
many of our local churches are growing stronger these days. They are growing in numbers, in maturity, and in impact. And we're seeing a higher level of collaboration between churches of various denominations. And this is leading the church to grow. So, and because the church is growing, there is a greater need for developing leaders, equipping leaders, empowering leaders to go and serve and, uh, you know, be part of the expansion of the kingdom of God. So leadership is key, as we all know. And um, we believe that it's so important to bring back um, theological education to the local church. And when we talk about theology and equipping leaders, I think that's key because historically in Lebanon, a lot of the pastors were not theologically equipped. So good theology leads to good practice. Like for instance, you would see in Lebanon how a prosperity theology that promotes the idolatry of money has done a disservice to the people of Lebanon and is causing some of our church members to either leave Lebanon during this economic crisis or become uh, malfunctional and totally disappointed. However, uh, leaders who place the cross at the center of the Christian message and, you know, as the climax of the eschatological drama are seeing their members endure the hardships of life. So we need those leaders with, with uh, specific um, virtues and they have theological understanding of the biblical text and are able to lead their people in hardships. So good theology protects us from justifying theolo you know, theological uh, you know, ideas that we get here and there on non-theological grounds in order to push um, uh, personal agendas and, and things like that. So theology is something so important and that would lead us to good practice. And this has to happen through training those leaders. Like we're learning that those who uphold a theology that lacks an ecclesiology are suffering in Lebanon. Um, why? Because you cannot live on your own. You cannot carry the burden and the, all the challenges around you if in your theology you don't take ecclesiology seriously. So what makes the believers in Lebanon stay, um, in addition, of course, to their calling, is their distinctive communal identity. They feel we're part of a corporate life and we're part of a community. So where do they learn that? It is the leaders who are living out this message and teaching it, I think. Mm. And this is uh, very much within the spirit of, of Langham, isn't it? Because that was very much John Stott's concern as well, was that uh, the church will grow in numbers, but it also needs to grow in depth and maturity and theological and biblical understanding. And that really is in the hands of godly leaders who themselves are, like Paul tells Titus and Timothy, setting an example not only of, of good doctrine but also of, of godly living. So it seems to me that this is very much in tune with, I would say, not just with Langham but with uh, apostolic practice as well, which is good. Yeah, exactly. And I've learned a lot from John Stott and from you guys, of course. So, And, and when you think of a crisis such as the Lebanese one, the value of having potential leaders in the pipeline cannot be stressed enough for sustaining and growing the local church. Mm. So it is really, if you look around 
And those churches with constant leadership development plans for their new converts, um, they are able to survive and thrive during this crisis. You can see other churches that are maybe closing down because there are no leaders to 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 lead and to help. So so yeah. Let me come to an area uh, on which your church has undoubtedly grown, and your book is very clear on this, and that is the way uh, Resurrection Church Beirut, and indeed other churches in, in Lebanon, as I know, but particularly RCB, has reached out in the context of the war in Syria to caring for, loving and welcoming the Syrian refugees who came uh, and poured into Lebanon uh, during that war. Uh, tell us a bit about that and what that cost, because obviously, uh, as you told us earlier, the civil war in Lebanon involved Syria basically as, as the enemy. And here are people from your enemy coming into your country. Uh, and you are, what are you going to say? What are you going to do in relation to them? So perhaps you could tell us a bit about how that aspect of the story of your church has happened. Yes. Um, ten years ago, um, or maybe more actually, when Syrians started to come to Lebanon. You know, the war started in Syria and we've had an influx of Syrians coming into the country. And just before that, Resurrection Church had a heart to serve the marginalized. And we had one of our leaders at the church. He was he was living in an area where there were a few Syrians. So we were praying about it and we felt that there is an open door. So we went and we started serving these Syrian families who had come to work in Lebanon. That was just a year before the war. And then suddenly when we start having, when the war started and Syrians were coming to Lebanon, we um, discovered that there's a greater need to serve them. But at the same time, we were aware that we grew up in Lebanon knowing that our enemies, you know, Syrians were our enemies. So um, we, it, it was quite hard to accept that God's calling into our lives to go and serve our enemies. You know, there's sometimes, you know it in your mind that, you know, the Bible says you have to love your enemies, but reading about it is one thing. But once they start coming to your church, you're sitting next to them. Um, I'd be sitting, let's say, in front and people are sitting behind me. They are Syrians. You're just having all these ideas and the history and, and all the disappointment and the pain that you've been through. So it's, it was really hard, hard at the beginning. And then you start having people in my congregation coming and say, oh, I don't, wanna, I don't want my kids to play with those kids or I don't want to go to the you know, toilet or bathroom where they go and so forth. And then I had, I felt the need to do a lot of teaching on how to become a church. A church is not made only of Lebanese. A church is from every nation and tribes and how we're called to love our enemies. And what I did, because I needed healing myself as well from that, I remember one day, one Sunday, I invited one of those Syrian leaders, he was a militant leader at the time who left Syria, came to Lebanon. He ran away, actually. And then when I heard his story and how he saw a candle um, and he followed the light, he heard a voice that was telling him to follow the light. So when he came to, to church and he loved our congregation, I invited him on Sunday morning um, up and he sat on the stage and I brought a bucket of water and I 
bowed down and I washed his feet. And I, I thought if I do that, it's going to help my congregation see that we're called to, to wash the feet of one another and serve one another. So when I bowed down to wash the feet of my enemy, basically, you know, God brought all the um, the past memories and the stories and I started to cry and I've learned an amazing lesson when you bow down to serve your enemy. God comes down and heal your wounds, heal your past. And I cried, my leaders cried, we were all crying in that service. And it was so transformational. And I've learned that before you go out to transform others, the Spirit of God transforms us and works in us in a transformational way to be able to go out and make a difference in the world. So we were first transformed in order to go out and serve and invite others to be transformed by the mm. power of love and the power of reconciliation. Mm. So that unconditional love that we had to learn the hard way, I think was the key that helped Resurrection Church to grow. Mm -hmm. And others have seen that and question, I mean, why do you love us that much? Mm -hmm. And it's not only us. I mean, many churches, I want to give the credit to many other churches in Lebanon who did the same. Mm -hmm. And they are loving their enemies unconditionally. But this is our story. That moment when we washed the feet of our enemy, in a sense, we had that um, amazing experience, powerful visit from God's Spirit into this specific congregation at the time. And we had um, all together that calling, yes, we're gonna serve, we're gonna love, we're gonna reach out. And this is where we started doing, doing holistic ministry. Um, we've, uh, we've done you know, food programs, medical needs. We provided a lot of medications and services, counseling, trauma counseling serving kids, children, couples, parents, um, widows, and so forth. Um, a, a few things around that. First of all, our podcast is called On Mission, and there are those who would argue that the mission, strictly speaking, of the church is basically the, the word mission of evangelism and teaching and discipling and so on. Uh, and that while caring for the needy and all of those other things that you describe as holistic, they're all good, but they're not mission as such. Um, and I just wonder if you come across that kind of argument and how you respond to it in terms of what your church has done and experienced in terms of serving others in that very holistic way, especially since I've gathered that about 70% of those who are in the churches are actually from Syria, are, are refugees. Uh, yes, I've heard that argument before. I mean, if you are serve, if you're loving your neighbors, you love them as yourself. And how can you how can you share Christ with someone whose child has no milk to drink and goes to sleep on an empty stomach? I mean, how can you tell that person, oh, God loves you and we love you and I have a great message of hope for you and I'm not willing to share my resources with that person. I mean, it doesn't make sense when you are underground serving the people. Staying in Lebanon is one thing, but being with the wounded is another. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So the, the, the church is a unique congregation and part of the community and in the community, with the community and for the community. When you are with your friend, if you see them as your friends, not just potential converts, if you see them as part of your family, as part of your uh, neighbor's neighborhood, I mean, you don't even ask that question. If you know that their child is sick and he needs medication and you are providing medications for your own kids, wouldn't you provide medication for for your neighbor? So I don't understand this argument. I've heard it before. I've heard people say, you do the evangelism and let some NGOs do the food distribution and things like that. Well, Jesus fed the hungry. Jesus cared. I mean, if you examine, you know, I did one thing one day. I spent the whole night reading the Gospel of Mark um, in Greek without, you know, numbers and chapter numbers and verses and so forth. And I was writing every single thing that Jesus did. And I was amazed to see that there is a there is a repetitive uh, pattern in Jesus' life. So he would call people to follow him. He would, uh, you know, teach the word of God. He would cast out demons. He would heal the sick. He, and then you'll see him praying and then again it happens again and again so he is when you think about it what he's doing he is healing people um, physically emotionally he is feeding the hungry he is uh, relationally healing people so he is doing things holistically i mean i haven't seen jesus in the bible caring just for the spiritual part of humanity i mean that um dissecting humanity into different parts i don't think that's that's mm. uh, christianity christianity look at the person holistically and try to move with compassion and love to serve those who are in need without asking whether this part is physical or emotional or spiritual and the thing is that when the churches and christians do that it seems that God, the Holy Spirit, comes along and says, yeah, well, I, I will bring these people to myself, to an understanding of the love of God in Christ and to all the blessings that we call, you know, salvation and forgiveness and so on. It, it seems to me that there is something, when, when I've heard, because you're telling me this, I've heard it also from Riyadh about the churches in his region up in, in Zakhli and so on, that these are Christians who are intuitively, almost instinctively, being Christ-like. They, they, they don't need lectures in missiology, as it were, um, or even holistic or integral mission, they simply do and be what Jesus said we should be and do and go and care for people and love people. And then uh, that draws them to the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately to to the gospel and to the truth uh, that we have in Christ. It seems there's something instinctively holistic about Christians doing that uh, and, and, and that that is what, if, what the Bible would call, if well, what we would call mission in its truest sense of being godly and Christ-like in the world. Exactly. And um, I mean, you know, some leaders are trying to run their churches through Zoom calls. You know, sometimes you need Zoom and Zoom is great. But because of the economic crisis, some of the leaders have left the country and they're still leading their congregations or trying to lead them through Zoom and, and you know, uh, social stuff and so on, and I, uh, social media, which we believe in. We have a great ministry on social media. But basically, again, you cannot serve the people unless you are with them and, and mm-hmm. a part of their struggling and suffering. 
I said staying in Lebanon is one thing, but being with the wounded is another. In a sense, I mean, you can you can be in Lebanon even, but not close to the wounded. You can be in your office, but not really caring for the needy in your congregation. Yeah. It requires incarnation. That's the understanding of incarnation, mission, incarnation. Mm -hmm. And the story of the Good Samaritan teaches us that the neighbor is defined um, as one who shows, right, a mercy. So, so we create a neighbor, neighbor relationship where none existed before through serving holistically physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of our community. So I make the other person my neighbor by taking that step and initiative to go close and, you know, care for their needs. Yes, the church does that. No one else is called to love the, congregate, the, the community as much as the church is called to do that. Mm. One could say that God so loved the world that he didn't just zoom in. <laughs> but came in and the word became flesh and lived among us. Um, I want to quote to you, Hikmat, something that you said to Langham uh, last year. You, you, you're talking about how so many ordinary people have this great uncertainty, and you referred to this earlier, uh, that, that people simply don't know what the future holds, that there's an uncertainty gripping the world today. And that's not true only in Lebanon, of course, it's all over the world. But you, you carry on, and I'm quoting, In the church, though, we have found a certain hope that whatever happens in the world, Christ has overcome the world, and today we have a unique and significant message. How can we communicate that here in Beirut? End quote. That's your closing question. How can we communicate that hope in Beirut? And I wonder, what's your answer to your own question? Oh, wow. I, I need to remember that, uh, you know, in which context we're talking about it. But I think, uh, how do we communicate this in Beirut? That hope is by being present, by being in the midst of the suffering. The Christian community has the opportunity to form a counter community of witness. And, um, you know, the church is different. So we are called to live out a message of hope because we hear the voice of our shepherd and we follow him and we invite people to to listen to the shepherd and to follow christ so how do we do that i think i mean there are so many different ways of of doing it by being present by serving by being the voice for the voiceless and um yeah so I think the opportunity to let me let me put it that way. I think the church has an opportunity now in Lebanon and everywhere to cultivate an alternative consciousness regarding politics, immigration, racism, equality, and ways to resist the powers of this world. So what I'm trying to say that being in Lebanon and try to say, Okay, there is a different way of doing politics. There's a different way of looking at what racism is all about and immigration. You know, a lot of people are leaving. But as a church, we have to, we're required to think uh, practically, theologically. And we need hermeneutical strategies 
and it's a task that the community of scholars and past pastors should embark on. And this will help us to establish um, alternatives to immigrations, for instance, how people treat one another, how Lebanese treat Syrians. So there is this community of believers that they get together, they pray together, they ask the Holy Spirit to help us live out a message of hope, justice, beauty, order in a world where we need all of that. So you bring hope to the world around you by being not just individually, but as a community, um, you live out kingdom value values in that world. And you mentioned in the midst of what you were just saying as a hermeneutical community, that is as a community that interprets the scriptures. So would you agree that the, the hope that we have as an eternal hope is the hope because we're living in that story, the Bible story, and we know how it ends, <laughs> and therefore we, we live in the applied uh, bearing the scriptures, bringing the scriptures to bear on those issues? Exactly. Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, I mean, we, yes, we are part of this meta-narrative, and, and it gives us a lot of confidence and joy and peace. And in addition to that, we carry these signposts, um, such as justice and love and relationships and, and freedom and truth, serve leader, servant leadership. And these are like signposts posts that they are shining brightly, especially in Lebanon today in times of chaos and darkness and despair. So people are being attracted to a different way of being a human being, a different way of living in Lebanon. And the reason behind the way we're living is Christ. Yeah, it's his word, it's the spirit in us. So how much Lebanon needs freedom, how much we need, you know, healthy relationships and true love and beauty and justice, all these amazing words. I think we're, if we're able to live them out, all our, you know, human weaknesses relying on the grace of God, I think these signposts are a great attraction and they will lead many to know Christ. Mm. Let me turn for a moment, Hikmat, really following up from that to your book, uh, which I have here, a copy of which I read as soon as it came out, Following Jesus in Turbulent Times, which is what we're talking about, of course, disciple-making in the Arab world, published by Langham Partnership. And rather appropriately to what we've just been saying, um, among the endorsements is one by Rick Warren, in which he says that in Lebanon, RCB, Resurrection Church Beirut, is on the front lines sharing God's truth with love to the refugees from Syria and Iraq. And I'm impressed with how he uses both those words. In every circumstance, the church remains committed to make Christ known as our only hope and salvation, even as the world around is being torn apart. Uh, and that seemed to me to be a, a very perceptive uh, introduction, in a sense, to what, what the book is about, because it does bring that hope, but it brings it through being the church and bringing hope. And just looking at the table of contents for a moment, uh, it's, 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 it's just so every chapter has a, a lovely title, like reaching, witnessing, changing, nurturing, teaching, growing, serving, praying, belonging, suffering, 
and so on. And I, I just want to, we do want to recommend people to, to get and to read this book, Hikmat Kashu, Following Jesus in Turbulent Times. Uh, but perhaps you could share a bit about it and what your vision is for it and, and how any response that you've been having to it. Yes, thank you. I think what I you know like about the book is that we have tried, you know, I've put it in a context where we work with uh, people who are not Christians, who work with Muslims and so on. And there are some amazing stories of transformation and how the power of God has transformed people through dreams and visions and stories of transformation, the work of the church, the local church. So it gives a lot of encouragement to pastors, leaders, to see the the spirit in action and you know what God is doing in this part of the world. Mm. Is there any particular story that you could quickly share with us at all of of of, of transformation in that sense? Because this the book is very much about the life of your church. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are a lot of stories. I mean, all these pastors who have come from non-Christian backgrounds carry with them amazing, um, great stories. So, uh, so you have to have come, for instance, where, um, you know, um, you have this lady who has seen a vision of Christ. She comes from a Muslim background and she has uh, never read the scriptures, but she saw herself in a lake and then she, she saw Jesus and she could recognize that that's the, the Christ, the Messiah, and he invited her to walk on water. So this lady walked on water and came to Christ and she had no idea that there is um, a story of Jesus walking in water or anything like that. So what happened was that when she had that experience, she came to one of our leaders, her name is Samar, and she shared with her, I had that vision. I saw myself, um, you know, standing by, by the lake and Jesus invited me to come and walk on water. And when, he, when Samar opened the scriptures and she showed her the story, she was so amazed uh, by by the relationship between the dream and the biblical text. And she gave her life to Jesus at that moment. Mm. And um, we have a lot of, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of stories of people who have seen visions and dreams of Jesus inviting them. Um, there are places where we cannot go and Christ is really reaching out to people through visions and dreams. Um, we have stories of, you know, not every person we prayed for got healed but we have seen people who are healed in a miraculous way. I remember holding in my arms um, a child who had cancer and the doctors confirmed that his case is really hard and rare. And, you know, I prayed for many people who had cancer, but very, very, very few stories are like this one. So that is quite a unique one. So basically when I carried him, I had that feeling inside of me that God is doing something in the life of this child. So, when I, I, I wasn't the only one praying, so we were like four or five of us praying over that child. And then they went home, and the next day they had to see the doctor, and he realized that there's something different in the child. So he asked him to redo all the different tests and so forth. And one of the doctors was in the church when we were praying for that child. And then he was so amazed later on, and he came and he said, I mean, what happened can only be explained as a miracle. And the boy got here and he's still um, healthy and strong. So, yeah, God is Praise able God. to do amazing things. Praise God. He certainly is. 
it could be that your book, in some ways, uh, is the answer to my next question, which is as we begin to draw towards a close, but uh, which is really, what do you think the church in Lebanon, not just your own church, including, of course, your own church, but the church in Lebanon as such, what do you think that the church there can teach those of us who, particularly those of us in the West, uh, probably most of us listening to this conversation, who live in relatively comfortable circumstances, what can we learn from your church? Ah, wow, what a question. Uh, well, I would say that one of the things that we're learning, as I mentioned earlier, that you can only... Um, you can only transform others. I mean, it's only God who can do the transformation, but you can be part of transforming the life of others if you're open to be transformed yourself. Uh, we're learning that resilience is key, perseverance is key, and the reliance on the Holy Spirit is key to be able to have, to make a breakthrough in the community you're working is, is you're working in. We're learning that there are places we cannot go, but God is able to. And what is most powerful in our experience is that we should always follow the lead and we should always follow the wind of the Spirit. So instead of saying, oh, we want to go and do this as a church, what we do at Resurrection Church is we listen to the shepherd's voice, to the Spirit, and see the need and see where God is moving and just follow him. So he is doing the breakthrough and we're just behind him, following, trying to follow him faithfully. Mm. So instead of saying, let's go do that and this, this and that, I think it's so important to give time to listen, prayfully, to allow God to work in us in order to do the right thing and do it the right way. So, I mean, there are a lot of things we can learn from the crisis. I think our past is very important and how God can heal the past and transform it. Where we, One of the lessons we've learned as well, that the most powerful tool of evangelism is forgiveness. So we've learned that if you really forgive your enemy, you forgive those who are different from you, that by itself is an extremely powerful tool of evangelism. Mm -hmm. So when I look around, I see like I travel around and I see that there's a lot of even, you know, hatred between different political parties. So it's not just in Lebanon. I see it in the whole Middle East and maybe I see it maybe everywhere. So I think that decision that to move towards the feet of the other, with love and compassion and willingness to serve, I think that's an extremely powerful testimony to the world. Mm. Thank you. And of course, as we come to a close, we know that we still need to pray for Lebanon because uh, for the last few years, there's been since the economic crash and the political crisis and the explosion in the port and so on, some terrible things have happened there. Uh, and it's just incredible how things have moved so quickly. I, Liz and I remember being there in October 2019 when the board uh, of Langham met there and we and so much enjoyed our, our visit. And yet it was the very beginning that month uh, of the, the revolution, which then sort of escalated into all kinds of other problems. So 
what what's next uh, really what's next for the country if you can even begin to think about that uh, certainly what's next for your church and what's next for you in terms of your own vision for the church and and your ministry there yeah i mean that's a great question i honestly don't know what's next for lebanon i mean if you look at the complexity of the region the political challenges the corruption we have the economic crisis I think I really don't know. God has not revealed to us what's next. But what we know is, as a church, we need, we're here. We want to serve our community. And, I mean, you can pray for us to stay focused, to keep listening to the voice of God, and to understand our limitations, to respect and appreciate, and work closely with other churches. We have developed something called Kingdom Partnership Network. So... We are working closely together, different churches from different denominations. We need one another more than any time before. I think uh, pray for us to to stay united, to to focus on our mission. Uh, pray for us to be, you know, the mission arm and heart of God in this part of the world, to be the light, um, to be city set on a hill. And um, I mean. You're, I'm sure you know that because you've been in Lebanon. There's no way we can make a difference in Lebanon on our own. I mean, many people have tried. This is impossible. That's why we need the Spirit of God to lead us in the next uh, phase in the life of our church. We're so excited about what's going on. We're uh, looking into how these different congregations at RCB become independent churches and uh, so they can thrive themselves and then uh, plant other churches. So a lot of things are going on in Syria at the moment. A lot of those who have come to faith in Lebanon are serving back in their home country in Syria. So there's a great need to pray for these leaders with all the challenges they go through back in Syria. Syria will never be the same because of the number of those who have come to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And for yourself and Krista and your children, anything in particular? Yeah. Um, well, we need energy. We need, uh, we're need. we excited about the new phase. I think our kids are teenagers at the moment, and you understand that with teenage years, there are a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but we love how creative they are, as I said at the beginning. And, uh, and my son is going to go to university next year, so new changes um, Krista is coming back tomorrow. Um, yeah, so pray for us for God to continue to provide. Um, we, I need, um, you know, my relationship to my wife is really amazing, and I, I always say that without my wife, I mean, I couldn't do what I've done, uh, what we've done so far. And I think Krista would say if she were here that she needed prayers because she's doing a lot of amazing things in the community as well as in worship. I just mentioned that we started this music academy and she is one of the key leaders because she's highly professional in music. So she's so excited to bring worship into the life of our church and many churches through music and professional music. Wonderful. And presumably, Krista uh, spent a lot of time learning Arabic in order to be your uh, your wife and to communicate in the culture there, which is an, an amazing gift as well. Yeah, she's so gifted in languages. Like, mm. she is uh, fluent in 
her language in English, in Arabic. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, let me pray for you, uh, Hikmat, and then we'll, we'll conclude. Heavenly Father, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your people in Lebanon, in many churches, large churches like uh, Hikmat's Resurrection Church, and also many small communities of believers around the country, and for their witness to the love of Christ in the midst of the collapsing country and the refugee crisis and everything else that faces them. Lord, would you please be with them through your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for all the evidence, the miraculous evidence of your power at work in that country in the midst of all the worst that human beings can do and even natural disasters. Lord, be with them. Bless Hikmat and Krista, we pray, and their children, uh, and keep them faithful to you and seeing the fruit of their labor in that church. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's it for today's episode. I hope you were blessed by this conversation between Chris and Hitman and challenged to think about how you and your church might be signposts of justice, love, and servant leadership to those around you so that Christ would be glorified and the world would know his name. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless.